about 25 years ago. <clears throat> the reason I know the number is because we were just going to start the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. And uh, I had the good fortune to have in what is called an audience with uh, the Dalai Lama. And we talked about different things. And then when it was coming to a close, uh, he asked me if there were any problems, anything I wanted to talk over about practice. And I said, yeah, uh, <clears throat> we're about to start a center in Cambridge. And Cambridge being the way it is, it's uh, the problem as I see it may be an abundance of riches just so many different traditions and spiritual orientations and workshops and speakers and brochures and folders and flyers and uh, even just within Buddha Dharma, just Tibetan, what flavor do you want? Zen, Soto, Rinzai, etc. Uh, not to mention all the different yogic traditions and New Age growth traditions. And, and I just felt um, that there was a danger of it, uh, how, to, how to prevent uh, chaos, uh, confusion. Because if any of you have been to Cambridge and you look at some of the bulletin boards um, in some of the centers and also just out on the street, there's an endless array of smiling faces, teachers. Each one is either the, the most ancient tradition, the fastest way to get enlightened, uh, had the greatest teacher who ever lived, the direct way. Um, and they're all smiling and happy. <clears throat> Actually, not so much in Theravada, which apparently officially you have to look non-attached so they ne never smile. But when you get to meet them, some of them are very funny. But they, officially, they're not allowed to be, it seems. Um, <clears throat> so I told him that people's minds look like, were, were likely to be like these bulletin boards, where they just come in with all these different meditation techniques and methods, and I tried this and that, and what should I do, and so forth. And uh, as he usually does, he started massaging his head. Mm, 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 mm. And he said, oh, no problem. And he said, um, all school, Buddhist schools agree on, a, on one thing, the Four Noble Truths. <coughs> you have to do it in your elbow now, right? Did you see me catch it? <coughs> Correct. Um, <clears throat> and although there's such a wide variety of techniques and methods, it originated in India and then has moved through a, a number of civilizations and cultures, and uh, now it's here. And of course, it has taken on lots of changes, uh, each according to the culture that it moved into and through. <clears throat> and he said, but they all agree on the Four Noble Truths. Um, so if you really get to know the Four Noble Truths and make that the centerpiece of what you teach at your center, then when people come in, you'll see that no matter how they identify themselves, this person is, is uh, emphasizing the first and third noble truth, but they seem to have forgotten the second, or they never heard of it. That one is one, two, and three are OK, but they don't know there's a path, the fourth one. Uh, and he said, you'll be able to place them, so at least you'll be coherent, and then you can guide them. 
So that's what we've done. I mean, it's not that we keep talking about the Four Noble Truths. Uh, I personally teach it once a year. And I think it has held us in good stead. Um, <clears throat> so what I'd like to do is um, go over it from a certain angle this evening, to begin, begin it anyway this evening. Because we have one, we have a group of people here who've been practicing for 20, 25, and even 30 years. And then we have some of you uh, who are very new. Uh, one of the characteristics or the uh, uh, values of the Four Noble Truths or virtues of it is that uh, it doesn't go out of style so that it can be very helpful in orienting a new person. But let's say, oh, I've heard that one before for you old yogis. Um, the point isn't that you know what they are. The point is there's an endless refinement and deepening of it. Um, and as I hope I can at least begin to uh, sketch out this evening, uh, show you that. So my hope is that that can help us all connect with each other. Um, <clears throat> it seems like we're doing it anyway, but just to make sure. Uh, the Four Noble Truths First, there is a truth of suffering. There is suffering. It's not saying that all of life is just dukkha or suffering. The second one is there's a cause. The third one is there's an end to it. There's an end to, the, to sorrow. And the fourth is the way to that end is the path. Uh, the Buddha used the medical model of India at the time. It would probably be very, probably was very similar. Well, it was almost 3,000 years ago if any of you have studied Ayurveda, because it sounds identical. So step number one is a diagnosis that we humans uh, suffer. Um, dukkha is uh, much more subtle than just the word suffering, or now more and more common is stress. Um, <clears throat> there seems to be no English word that completely grasps it. But let's just say it ranges from the most severe torment and sorrow to very, very subtle kinds of irritation, irritability, and then even more subtle than that, uh, where there's a kind of underlying unsatisfactoriness. Um, I think often we're too busy that we don't even know it. In the modern world, it may be less. People uh, may experience it less, but if you read uh, beyond, this is fairly recent, what I'm calling the modern world. It seems that it may be true, certainly for some people, maybe for all of us. There's a yearning, a deep yearning for something deeper than just success, uh, riches, fame. Somehow we know that, uh, but uh, it doesn't seem to affect us that much until and this is the, the ancient way of looking at it, <clears throat> that practice, you really come to a path of practice through, through suffering. When you see the limitations of what it is you, were, you thought would make you happy. Not that you throw it away necessarily, but you see that it couldn't deliver what it promised. Not fully. And so there's that underlying unsatisfactoriness or inadequacy or I think some of the existentialist writings uh, get at it. 
so there are the, those four noble truths. Um, because of this medical model, so there is the, the disease, which is there is some suffering. There's, that's a diagnosis. Uh, that's the, um, and then there's a cause to it. We see that the cause is craving, grasping, attachment. Um, and there's the, a cure for the disease. And the cure, the medicine for the disease, is the path. Uh, so sometimes the Buddha is called the great world physician, healing spiritual illness, which is uh, one way to put it. Um, it certainly makes a lot of sense, and I think the decision was a wise one. This is thousands of years later, a number of people have seen this, and I'm one of them, is that he didn't bother with certain metaphysical theological disputes that seemed to bog us humans down. It's very, it's a medical, it's very practical, very pragmatic. It, it is not a, that you have to believe in it. It's sort of the proof of the pudding is in the eating. He's saying, this is your ailment. I've diagnosed it. This is the cause. There's a cure, but you've got to take the medicine. So the medicine is what we're doing here. Um, I also have seen it so that the Buddha is not simply, not only a great physician. These are just, you know, just metaphors, but a great educator, a great teacher. Uh, actually, the two are not necessarily inseparable. In the modern world, um, which seems to have neglected in medicine, preventive medicine, a lot of which was education, educating people to take care of themselves. It's now making a comeback, if you've noticed, uh, to start to understand how they eat, the lifestyle. I don't like the word style. You know, it sounds like it's... Uh, the latest hairdo or car or outfit. It's a way of living. It's much more substantial in a style. Um, but that's uh, ed education. And many of the ancient physicians would, that was part of how you treat people, is that you help educate them so that they can take care of themselves. Um, <clears throat> and that's helped me a lot. I see um, the practice very much as about being about learning. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Actually, there's a short version of what this, the, this Four Noble Truths. Uh, a while back, I was walking the streets of Cambridge, and an old student zipped by on a bicycle, stopped, and took something out of his wallet and said, I've been carrying this for you for a long time. And he just gave it to me and wrote off. And the quote was, it was a quote written down. The quote was, life is very difficult, but it's even more difficult if you're stupid. <laughs> and the person who said it was a totally underestimated, neglected, great Rishi, Sage, Maha, whatever, Acharya, John Wayne, in the, mo in the movie, the Sands of Iwo Jima, he's a sergeant. Actually, uh, those of you who are too young, or maybe very few of you, uh, it was an actual very bloody battle. And there was a sergeant who did say that. And of course, John Wayne played that role. Now, the Buddha is saying the same thing, not quite as impolite or direct or coy, but um, the root is ignorance. 
Um, so if you don't like the word stupid, I personally like it, because I think when I've suffered very often, it's been because I've been stupid. So I want to call it what it is, at least for me. Um, <clears throat> the Buddha's, the soil out of which all the uh, dukkha comes finally is ignorance, which itself has many nuances. Um, I would say one of the uh, one of the meanings of it, I find that I find the most helpful. It's ignorance and skill. There is a certain skill that we lack, and it's skill in living. So that I'd like to put forward a scheme that uh, it's not that difficult to remember, but I'll repeat it again and again. I think it just it's been very very helpful to myself and to at least some other people. Um, if you look at the Four Noble Truths, uh, it, one way to, to look at them that will help you remember it and also help you really practice with it so that it remains something that you can really use in your life, it stems from an exchange that the Buddha had with his son Rahula, where he uh, tells Rahula, before you act, an action here is uh, mental, verbal, verbal, and physical, any kind of action. Reflect. Is it uh, harmful or is it beneficial for you and for others? If it's beneficial, then by all means do it. If it's harmful, restrain yourself. Don't do it. Um, beneficial is skillful. Harmful is unskillful. And I think this will become clear as, as, uh, in a few moments. Um, so the first noble truth, oh, it, it goes further than that. It said, once you do act, if it turns out you thought it was going to be beneficial, but in fact you see that it wasn't, then stop, cut it off, maybe apologize, whatever it takes. Where you see that you thought it was going to be beneficial, but it turned out that it was harmful, then, then don't follow through. Stop it as soon as you can. And even after the, and if it's beneficial, by all means, enact it. And even after you've completed the action, verbal or physical, uh, sometimes after it, you look back and you realize, I thought this was going to really be beneficial, i.e. skillful. But it turned out that it was harmful. I used my best judgment at the time, but it was incorrect. And I see that it, so that you might even feel some remorse, the Buddha points that out. But it's not to lay a guilt trip on us. The remorse is in the service of learning. So the whole point is, if you feel something about having made a mistake, which is all too human, said, fine, but let that stir you to look at it, to examine it, and to reflect on it so that it can in some way contribute to not repeating that mistake again. Okay. So that was the teaching he gave his son. So if we back up now, the first noble truth is uh, an uh, emphasized cause and effect. Cause and effect is central in the Buddhist teaching, karma. But it's not necessarily on such a big scale. It's from moment to moment. So the first noble truth, there is dukkha. There is a suffering in this world, or sorrow, or insufficiency uh, in this world. Uh, that is an <clears throat> unskillful outcome. The second noble truth, which is craving and attachment, 
our tendency to grasp in a changing world, to try to hold on to what we value, uh, what we like, or what's pleasurable, and to push away what we don't like uh, in a world that, to a great extent, is not under our control. It's constantly changing. So it stands to reason you will suffer. So that's an unskillful cause producing an unskillful outcome, cause and effect. The third noble truth called cessation, that is, there is an end to sorrow, that's a skillful outcome. And the cause, so it's a skillful effect, the cause is the Eightfold Path. M many of you have heard that, perhaps all of you have. And that's the practice that we're doing. We will, it, during our time together, we just sketch it out a little bit. So you have <clears throat> the path, which is a skillful, that's the medicine, uh, skill in living, being applied, and when enacted, produces a skillful outcome. If, because of ignorance, being lacking certain skills, and we'll get to that in a moment, uh, lacking certain skills, the, the fact that the cause is unskillful is going to produce an unskillful outcome. Skill can be taken in, uh, synonymously with wisdom. Um, I like it in the following way, because it's very concrete and, and practical and down to earth. There is skill, just as you can be a skilled carpenter, a skilled painter, musician, dancer, cook. There are so many skills that we humans can learn. And it seems the one that is most neglected is skill in living. We are brilliant in so many other things, beyond brilliant. Looking at some of these little things that, you know, you have everything in it. Anything a person could want, you know, just click this, you got TV, this, you know, and it's just beginning. Who knows what it'll do for us? Uh, iPhones or whatever, iPads and more beyond that. So th that's, it's ingenious. And there's so many things that have outstripped science fiction when I was growing up. Those old movies are boring. So we're absolutely brilliant when we apply ourselves. We've gone to the moon. How do we do that? Tremendous collaboration of intelligence and energy and money and coordination. And we can't live with each other yet. We keep for, we don't seem to be able to learn that one. We seem to have a learning disability. We seem to be able to learn so many things. But that one, maybe because it is so difficult, but it isn't given the highest priority. Well, this is a wisdom path. This path is a wisdom. Everything is in the service of wisdom, if you understand it. Even certain practices that might seem not so directly contributing to wisdom, when understood, they're indirectly contributing to the movement towards human liberation from this suffering. Um, let's take the first noble truth. There is suffering. There is unsatisfactoriness. Um, OK, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Not really. Uh, in other words, when, when you are suffering, do you know it? Perhaps we've improved a little bit. My generation of men, we were impossible because we were never suffering. You weren't allowed to because if you, if you were, you weren't a man. Uh, I think we've softened up on that. We're learning how to do that a little bit better, but it's still a ways to go. Um, and there's still a tremendous amount of self-deception and an unwillingness to look at our suffering or to not even know it's there. 
Now, some of that, if we um, go back to John Wayne, he is saying um, life is difficult. Can anyone challenge that? And it's much more difficult Let's say instead of stupid, we're ignorant. That means we, we lack skills. What, what, what skills, what do you use when you're suffering? What are the skills that you need to take care of yourself? Step number one is you have to know you're suffering. If you don't see a predicament, you can't do anything about it. And so it's, it's quite prevalent that we spend a lot of time blaming everything for our unhappiness, external. People, events, climate, you name it, anything. And so step number one is our old friend mindfulness, observation, awareness. Because the degree to which that becomes more refined, sensitive, stable, and accurate. Accurate is a very important part of it. We're more and more able to see what our actual life is as we live from moment to moment. It's by no means limited to a cushion or to IMS. Wisdom can come up anywhere. When you suddenly see something, you see the consequences of your action, cause and effect, and you see what you have contributed to. Uh, there, finally, the, the noble eightfold path is not something out there. That's just a metaphor. You're all sitting on the eightfold path because it's you. The eightfold path is our mind. You really can't understand the Buddha's teaching if you read through whole libraries on Buddhism with, unless you understand your own mind. Otherwise, it'll just be a lot of very rich, interesting words. There won't be very much change. It turns on self-knowing, a willingness to at least turn some of our, our energy inwardly and to get to know how we live, why we do things, not simply on the cushion and on retreats, which is extraordinarily helpful to kind of hone and fine-tune our ability to pay attention. But every moment of our life is an opportunity to learn. So life is really the great teacher. When we come on a retreat, we're equipping ourselves. The curriculum's all set. It's out there. Uh, the world exists in order to set us free, at very least. But no one's signing up for the course. So it's on every college, university, there's one building at least. Wisdom unto wisdom, know thyself, you know, Socrates and all that. But there aren't huge lines of people queuing up to do it. At least in my observation, there aren't. You, I don't know if you know that's why you're here. From my point of view, that is. If you're here, we assume that you care about the quality of your life. Why else would you come? And how can you do anything unless you're willing to take a look at how it is for you right now? Each one of us is different. We have a certain body that's a certain age, a certain health. The mind works a certain way. This is what we, the, the, the deck of cards we've been dealt. We, have, we start right there, right here for me, right, and to you. So the path is always here. Uh, Self-knowing requires a willingness to start to understand ourselves uh, in a fresh and new way. And that requires observation. That requires attention. And then sometimes people will say, you just, well, you just have to watch what's happening. Watch your mind, watch what's going on. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I can do that. Maybe. At a certain point, if you start watching, you may discover 
that you really don't know how to observe yourself because you begin to see that you're observing yourself from a certain angle. From, uh, in Buddhist language, from the point of view of greed, hatred, and delusion. Or put in more, perhaps graspable terms, we all have our past, our conditioning, our history. And so when we look, we think we're seeing things as they are, but it's dramatically colored by what is our birth, our religion, our ethnic group, our school, our this, our that. And uh, Vipassana meditation, which is first and foremost seeing, clear seeing, requires a, is, a, is a refinement in seeing. Now, all we can do is the best we can. So that let's say, if we're going to, if ignorance, which means a lack of skill, in one meaning of it, a lack of skill in, in what? In this case, just, just staying with the first noble truth. It means we don't fully know, we're ignorant of the best way to take care of ourselves when there is suffering. What does that mean? Um, we, we don't know how to take care of ourselves. Uh, again, first you have to know what's happening. Secondly, um, when we, we, we face uh, self-knowing, getting to know yourself, I would say starts with watching how you characteristically, how characteristically do, in fact, deal with suffering. Um, when we practice with this in Cambridge, I, I every year lead a practice group for about 10 weeks. I don't start people off with the Four Noble. I mention it, but then I say, rather than trying to live up to what the Buddha sketched out, let's start and spend a week or two just in a very innocent way, what happens when you're suffering? What do you do? And the people who do it, they find out one person just drowns in it, constantly lost in their sorrow. Another person in denial. Oh, I don't know. I didn't see much suffering during the week, or whatever it is. And so if you encourage people to take a look, they start seeing that they have a characteristic way of either it boils down to either pushing away or grasping, drowning in it or in some way denying it. And it's reactive. And the, rea the reactivity stems from our background. So we have habit energy that's been dealing with the unsatisfactoriness, if there is any, in certain ways that are unique to us. As you start to see that and the degree to which the mind is capable of seeing it, you start to take the power out of that. And so uh, skill here would be what we're learning, is how to pay attention in a non-judgmental, non-reactive way, a, a seeing that's mirror-like, that's not for or against anything. It just sees. And so if there's suffering, and if you fully, totally see it, then it's just what it is. And then, then, of course, the mind comes in. Um, so far, so good? Okay. Now, what I see is still, this is a, still a very difficult area for all of us. A very difficult area. And uh, here, here's a, a recent example, and for meditators, too. To really look at any, uh, anything that's a problem for you. 
just a few days ago, someone in, a, in one of our practice groups uh, talked about um, the joys of meditation. Fine, I like it when someone says, we need some testimonials now and then. Of course, teachers are going to say, this is great. That, that's what we do. This our, we're in the business. So this person went on, oh, I'm experiencing joy. It's a concentration practice of, of a certain sort. Um, experience just joy and peace and oh, it's just wonderful and now I can do it more regularly and just so happy and just I'm so glad that I'm taking, doing this practice and uh, been at it for a number of years and it was fine. And I saw, I said, is that it? And I said, yeah. I said, but is there any, is there still any suffering in your life? And the person was taken aback. Of course there is. Plenty of it. I'm saying, okay, what you report is terrific. That's great that you have a source now, uh, and that's a skill that you can, um, in you can gladden the heart. Let's say you can use the breath or metta, there are any number of practices where when, with a bit of practice of the practice, doing it, you can become pretty good at it, very good at it. And it can be a way of sort of switching channels if you're demoralized or emotionally exhausted or feel hopeless, you can, you can come to a certain inner peace and joy. It's not really wisdom yet, but it's a taste. It's a taste of what cessation might be like. But it isn't it, because it's dependent. It's dependent on turning off avoiding, or becoming absorbed in a very happy mind state that you can get to now more and more easily. But in the process, perhaps neglecting looking at fear, loneliness, fear of death, fear of aging, fear of sickness. Wisdom is about facing our life, becoming intimate with our actual life, entering into communion with the facts of our life from moment to moment. Wisdom grows out of, out of that. How can you learn to live if you don't face those instances where you're not living skillfully? It doesn't make much sense. So. Um, that's an example. And there's something else. It's sort of, uh, this is maybe a parody and, and not fair, but, um, you know, in cafes and airports and wherever I go now, when people are on phones, it seems like everyone is ending the same way, and I assume on the other end it's the same. Love you, love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. So you meet me and I'll see you at 4.33, love you, love you. So, Everyone loves everyone. And then if you ask someone, how's it going? Fine. So, love you, fine, fine, love you. This is a great planet we live on. Just everyone is fine and just loves everyone. I'm j I must be missing something. Maybe I have to get one of those cell phones. I don't have one by intent. I don't want people to be able to nab me wherever I go. I don't want to know all that information. If we needed more information, if that was going to save us, we would have been free a long time ago. We're drowning in information. What we need is wisdom, which is not information. Some of the information can bring us to it, motivate us, point us in the right direction. But finally, the kind of seeing that the Buddha is talking about, the wisdom, real wisdom, real insight, grows out of, this, out of clear seeing. It's not something that you think up. It's not contrived. 
and the benevolence that comes out of it is not contrived benevolence. It's uncontrived. It comes out of something remarkable in us humans. We really have some, uh, a vast richness inside us it's not, that typically is not tapped. Let me, um, Michael, when do we end? What time is it, eight? Okay. Let me give you a, a concrete example of working skills, because um, if ignorance, as I'm using it now, is ignorant, not uh, lacking the skills so that we can live with suffering when it comes up. The Buddha said, all I'm teaching is suffering and the end of suffering. It's not a small statement, and it helps keep you honest. I'll tell you how I see it from my own practice. Uh, and then I'll get to this example, which I think I, I think I'm pretty sure applies to this retreat for most of us, if not all of us. Years ago, I used to be very interested. I studied animal, uh, it, was, it used to be called ethology, shallower and the gorillas and all kinds. And some of it is laboratory research. But this research was in the wild. And when, uh, when the uh, observer wanted to get a census of the population of a particular group of animals, one way to do it is you don't have to go around trying to count everyone. There's no census that you can hand out. You station yourself near the waterhole. And every, all the creatures come to that waterhole. And you can get a sense of who's, who the, what the population is, the number and the makeup and so forth. I would say dukkha is like that. Because if, it helps keep you honest. No matter what you think your practice is doing for you or isn't doing for you, uh, come back to that from time to time. Because that's the watering hole. Watering hole. You, the, everything about the mind will be learned. If you more and more remember and decide that it's very important, essential, it's urgent that we face suffering if it's there. Now, the suffering I'm talking about is, is not the inevitable kind. That's included. The body, of course, must age. Of course, the illness comes. And of course, we all die. And then physical catastrophe happens, Haiti and so forth. Some of that, that's out of our control. That's inevitable. But there's another kind that's optional. And that's essentially what the sutra is about. The Buddha is talking about that part of human suffering that we, uh, that we needn't undergo. And we do because we're not skillful, because we're ignorant. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to live. So let's take something that I think probably is quite uh, close to you. Anyone recognize that your body hurt, hurts at, at certain times from, from sitting? Show of hands. Look at that. So you all qualify. It's good you're on this retreat. OK, so that's pain. Your knee hurts, your lower back hurts. And let's say if you sit in this position for a certain period of time and the body's not used to it, of course, there'll be some pain, even if you get used to it. We can't totally control that. Yoga can help. Tai Chi can help. All kinds of things can help. Massage. But finally, bodies are vulnerable to pain. Uh, if you don't want to ever be in pain, don't get born. Because if you've got a body, you're going to experience pain, no matter how much organic food you devour. <laughs> or if you become vegan. I was corrected the other day. It's not vegan. 
I said, oh, is this a vegan cupcake? Uh, vegan. <laughs> so it's the newest ideology, new way to tyrannize each other. That person drinks milk. They have dairy. Did you know that? Dairy. I'm not going to date that person. Okay. Okay. Where were we? Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's say uh, the body. There's a part. Let's say it's the lower back, the part of your body. No one's denying that. Throb, throb, ache, ache. And here we encourage you, you know, to try to sit. We're not trying to cripple you. So, and we assume that if there's something that needs medical attention, that's out of our ken. It's up to you to take responsibility for it. And there are chairs here. We're, we're very open to try to find. So the key thing, postures don't really meditate. The mind meditates. But we have a body, we have, and it's good to take care of it. And so let's say there is this throb, throb, ache, ache. That's pain. No one's denying that. Now, where does ignorance come in? Ignorance, which in this language is unskillful way of relating to it. Because if we can't see the difference between the mind and the body, although they're closely interrelated, very closely interrelated, it's one system, they're also distinguishable. Now, if this weren't true, it would be hopeless. Because liberation depends on understanding the mind and seeing how much of the unnecessary suffering is generated in an unexamined mind. Self-knowing, self-understanding, self-knowledge, know thyself, etc. It's not simply for philosophy students. It's practical. If you don't know yourself, don't be surprised that there are going to be a lot of things happening that you don't like. So that's why this is a wisdom path. It's to help us. We need help. For example, I could just say, we could just say, OK, you're here. Uh, pay attention to everything that happens while you sit. Here's the schedule. The bells will be rung, et cetera. Keep quiet, and we'll check in with you on Wednesday and see how it goes. I mean, it would be crazy. So there is help. The Four Noble Truths is not a belief system. It's a kind of prism, an, an angle at which to view your experience, which the Buddha is suggesting by, of course, placing suffering it, it, by, by the way, the suffering is not noble in and of itself. Otherwise, the whole planet is no, it's just a great noble planet. Love you and everything's fine. Uh, the nobility comes out of understanding, out of seeing our predicament as humans. And then wisdom does something about it. Wisdom is the art of living. Okay, So as you pay attention, and in order to do that, uh, you, the mind has to be trained you begin to see that there's a difference between throb, throb, ache, ache, and, and the stories that the mind makes up about what's happening. Uh, and if there's no insight into that distinction, then the pain of ache, ache, throb, throb can become torment. And we don't realize that, that both the mind contribution and the physical pain have sort of been thrown in the blender, and what comes out is torment. As we begin to see, no one's denying the pain is there, physical pain. But then as we begin to see the role that the mind plays, the unexamined mind, when awareness starts to see that, it starts to take the potency out of that aspect of mind. So skill, uh, a skill that's valuable, is understanding that there's a difference and that 
uh, as we learn how to pay attention by paying attention to the mind, the mind starts losing its ability to turn pain into torment. How does it do that? It identifies with the pain, and, uh, or it blames others. It's Michael's fault and Larry's fault. They make us sit here. Well, these sittings should be shorter. It's IMS's fault. I'm not coming back to this place. My body hurts because they make these sittings. Why can't the sittings just be 15 minutes each until you have a good sitting? Then when we ring the bell, what's wrong with these people? The sittings should be longer. <laughs> it was just getting started, and now they terminate it. Okay. Or, in other words, we, blame, we look everywhere but in the right place. So skill would be looking in the right place, which is seeing throb, throb, ache, ache, learning. And to do that, the mind has to be steady, clear, accurate, and also starting to see the, how we relate to physical pain when we have it. And everyone, some people drown in it. Oh, they just uh, get lost in it and then cope with it, put up with it for the whole retreat. And it's grim and joyless. And probably you don't want to practice anymore. So there are all kinds of there's escapes from it, there's drowning in it, there's aversion to it. Uh, central to it is, and see if this is so, let's say my lower back hurts. Throb, throb, ache, ache. It, it didn't. It was fine today. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> okay. So um, that is a fact. But then the mind comes in, and it's not simply that the back hurts. It's that my lower back hurts, the most important back in the entire universe. My lower back. A, so it's all attached to, identified with, and made into torment. As we begin to see how the mind fabricates, construes, it's a great storyteller. And it's totally, it has complete poetic license, shameless. It has no limits. It doesn't, uh, you can read all the great spiritual books, and the mind can make up whatever it wants to. It's brilliant, too, in that way, devious shrewd, but it wants to stay alive. Okay, So as we insight would begin to see that, and as that falls away, the, the, you short circuit that identification with the body. And so there's still ache, ache, pain, pain. It's not some kind of happy ending Hollywood movie, but it isn't torment because you st you've started to take apart, uh, take the energy out of uh, the mental contribution to it, the mental emotional contribution to it. So um, the first and second noble truths have this, this kind of thing. Uh, in order to really learn this, you've got to pay attention to how each one of us, how we create that. So if the second noble truth is craving and attachment, wanting things to be a certain way or wanting things to not be a certain way, and the outcome of that wanting or not wanting is suffering, as we begin to see that dynamic, that lawfulness, that cause and effect, then the seeing itself takes the power out of it. And suddenly, uh, there's a certain kind of, of uh, sorrow that is gone. Now, cessation, the third one, will end here. Uh, it's sometimes used as mom in a momentary way. That is, let's say, in that given, and of course, I hope you bring this into your practice, in a moment when you're aware of throb, throb, ache, ache, and you can 
you're totally with it, if you're totally attentive to it, that breaks the momentum of selfing, of the mind's tendency to identify and personalize everything that is happening to me. The entire universe is about me. If you're fully attentive, fully attentive, and that takes a while to learn for you newcomers, not forced, it's relaxed, but steady and accurate and dependable, then that selfing, making it into me, doesn't ever happen. You'll have to test it to see if that's so. Um, and so in that learning, it comes more, um, it's a piece of learning. You've now developed a skill. If you learn it once, you can then see that that's applicable in many, many other situations in life. Uh, so let's, let's uh, uh, that's enough for this evening. Can we have a few moments of, of silence, please? May we all continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Okay, some walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.